Uh, we'll turn now to read our passage for today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 2, verse 16. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Now, it'll help um, us 
all of us as we study 1 Corinthians. If you can open up your Bible, we've got a bit of catching up to do, so we'll go pretty fast today. Chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter 2, verse uh, 16. And alongside your Bibles, the notes on the back of the service sheet uh, will uh, help us. And some big stuff, important stuff today. Uh, some important questions and some clear answers. There are two words that dominate the passage that Amy read in this section of Corinthians. And these two words are, are power and wisdom. And the questions that arise off these two important words are, what is true spiritual power in the life of a church? And what is true spiritual wisdom in the life of a church? And the really important questions, you know, what, what, is it that, what is it that we are looking for in the life of a local church that means there is true spiritual power? And what is true spiritual wisdom? Now, the answer to the questions in one sense is obvious. True spiritual power is the power of God, and true spiritual wisdom is the wisdom of God. But what's not obvious is what the power of God is and what the wisdom of God is. And why it's not obvious is that with all the ways that we're wired as human beings living in the world, the answer is not going to be what it is. So the power of God is not going to look like or feel like power. And the wisdom of God is not going to look like, sound like, or feel like wisdom. Now, it'll become clear as we run through. So let's look at the power of God first. What is the power of God in a local church? Now, I've asked the question precisely. Johnny uh, put me onto this as we prepped the sermons this week. He said to me, you're asking the wrong question. He said, you shouldn't be asking, what is the power of God like? Which I was asking. You shouldn't be asking, what, what does the power of God feel like? He said, you need to be asking the most important question, what is the power of God? Actually, what is it? Well, look with me at verses 18 to 25. Uh, I've entitled these verses, Unimpressive uh, Message. Let's read them and look out for references to the power of God. For the word or the message of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, you see the answer to the question, what is the power of God? The power of God is the message of the cross. Read on, verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, and by Christ there, Paul is abbreviating the first bit of verse 23. It could read, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the preaching of Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God, one bookend, 
is the message of the cross, the power of God. The other bookend in this section is the preaching of Christ crucified. There's the answer to the question, what is the power of God? I mean, that's a really important question and a really important answer. It's not anything else. Why is the power of God the message of the cross? Because that is how God saves people from everlasting judgment. And that which God determines will save people from everlasting judgment, logically, is what God attends with his almighty supernatural power. And nothing will ever change the fact that the power of God is the message of the cross, the speaking, the telling of the message of the cross. But in the eyes of the world, and here's the point that Paul is making, that's foolish. An unimpressive message, unsophisticated, provocative, and shocking. The message of the cross is taking one's life on the death of someone on a cross is an affront to our human dignity and self-worth, an insult to our intelligence. Now, the power of God is the unimpressive message of the cross that saves unimpressive people. That's Paul's focus in verses 26 to 31. He writes, Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Some are, but not many of those in the church of Christ. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Where in these churches in East Asia that we are praying for this morning, where is the real power in the end? Where's the real power in the end? Who in these church buildings has the power of God? And there's a very stark illustration of the difference between what you see and what you feel and what is true. Let me tell you who you are. Who I am. Unimpressive and ordinary, but chosen by God. In Christ Jesus, who has become to you wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. You are royal. You are in Christ. 
But in the world's eyes, we are nothing. In God's eyes, you are everything. The power of God has saved you, the most powerful, supernatural force in the world has invaded your life. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So God looks at you and sees perfect righteousness. The world looks at you and sees something awfully ordinary. And think of that on a bigger level, local living churches across the world. If you look at local living churches across the world, they do not look powerful. The power of God is the unimpressive message of the cross that saves unimpressive people through unimpressive preachers. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Unimpressive preachers is not the same thing as boring preachers. Yeah? And it doesn't mean a gift to preach is unimportant. Nor does it mean that preachers shouldn't work hard at their preaching. It doesn't mean either that it doesn't matter who preaches. It does matter who preaches. All of these things are important. Unimpressive preachers or unimpressive evangelists or unimpressive Christians are simply those who speak the message of the cross and who live cross-shaped lives, as we'll see later in the book. If you speak Christ crucified, if that is the mark that defines your preaching or your speaking of the gospel, you will be regarded in the eyes of the world and the worldly church, which is harder, as unimpressive, as unimpressive as the message of the cross you preach. But there's more here about the power of God in the preacher or the evangelist. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read again. I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The power of God is not associated with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2 of his letter, cut straight with the word of God. The gospel is not complicated. It is profound, but it's not complicated. Say it as it is. Do not bring to the table lofty speech or wisdom. Do not bring to the lectern lofty speech or wisdom. Do not bamboozle people with rhetoric that is sophisticated. There is no place for arrogance or superiority or an erudite, sophisticated message designed to impress people. I once uh, was at a conference where someone was preaching and at the end of the session, uh, uh, Round our table, somebody said, what did you think of that? And they said, I didn't understand a word of it, but it was wonderful. That's not wonderful. Do not ever seek to impress people, but express the gospel. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul made a kind of conscious decision in his life as a preacher 
And you and I need to make conscious decisions in our life as preachers, Bible teachers, or Sunday club teachers, or just in the sharing of the gospel in our conversations, a conscious decision to focus on the message of the cross. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and I'm crucified. I decided to make that the drumbeat that characterized my ministry. Why? Because it's the message of the cross that the supernatural power of God attends because that's what God has determined to save humanity. Verse 4, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. There's a great phrase. What is, what is not authentic are plausible words of wisdom. Plausible words of wisdom are not attended by the power of God. That means plausible words of human wisdom. Like God saves everybody. Or it doesn't matter on this or that or the other. That's plausible, impressive, acceptable, but it lacks the power of God. Everything Paul was as a preacher was not impressive in the eyes of the world. And verse 3 I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much uh, trembling. You know what you think of the Apostle Paul as some kind of, of course, art and Christian iconography doesn't help. Here's the Apostle Paul. I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. The brokenness, the weakness, the frailty, the insecurity of the preacher is evidence of the power of God. Now, this doesn't mean that preachers or evangelists shouldn't have the gift of the gab, that's important. Nor does it mean that preachers and evangelists should be kind of intentionally paranoid about being insecure. But they just are. They just are. Why? So that your faith, Paul writes, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Never, ever, ever hang on the words of the preacher. It's Jesus you need to hold on to. A preacher cannot save you, only Jesus can. A preacher cannot comfort you, only Jesus can. A preacher can manipulate you. A preacher can make you cry. A preacher can make you laugh. A preacher can make you tell them anything. A preacher can do untold damage. But a preacher who is insecure and in weakness and in fear and much trembling fears God such that they point you to him through the message of the cross will leave you resting not in his wisdom but in the wisdom of God. The genuine preacher will always be unimpressive in the world's eyes. And here's the real deal. The genuine preacher will always and needs to be unimpressive in their own eyes. 
That's important. When you think of the guy standing in front of you, the minister of this church, what extraordinary power and influence I have. I get to stand up here at least once on a Sunday and you can't answer back. What extraordinary, extraordinary influence that is. But every word I speak and every word Rog speaks and the other preachers, we are answerable to Almighty God. That's a big deal. So don't hang on our words. We are weak and frail and insecure and unworthy. And I think probably most of you in your heart of hearts know that is true. Now, before moving on to the wisdom of God, four brief implications. Just brief to give you them as headings and I commend them to you for your further consideration. Number one, do not ever move on from the message of the cross. As a church and as individuals, in your evangelism as a church and individuals, don't move on from the message which is the power of God. However weak it sounds, however weak the results appear to be, don't change it, don't add to it, don't subtract to it, don't make your focus anything other than the message of the cross. That's the first implication. The second, expect the world's disdain. True spirituality or mature Christianity that focuses unashamedly on the cross is folly and foolishness in the eyes of the world. So we should expect disdain from many, many people. Disdain is the right word in our culture. Sheer aggression is the right word in other cultures. If you stick like glue to the message of the cross, your church will never be regarded as impressive. You will never blend in and be accepted by the culture. You will never be the church in the city where people want to be seen. And in your personal evangelism, when you speak the message of the cross, even though it is the power of God, unless God opens people's eyes to see, they will hear what you say as foolish talk. They may not say it, but they'll think it. Expect it, but do not lose heart. That's exactly what the Bible says you will receive. Third implication, embrace your weakness because God's power is manifested through uh, weakness. True spirituality or real maturity as a church is a consciousness of weakness. And the knowledge that God's power is manifested through weakness. The message we speak sounds weak and unimpressive. I mean, just let me just reassure you in that, that we believe, I believe, many of you believe that 
The message of the cross is the most important thing that we have ever, ever heard and the most important thing that we will ever, ever say and every time I speak about it, unless it's just Christians in the room, it sounds unimpressive and weak. But the weakness we are most aware of or should be aware of is the weakness in ourselves. Weakness for the Christian. A consciousness of sin. A deep, deep lack of feeling that one has the right words. Weakness for the Christian is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of genuineness. The Christian leader who is conscious of their weakness is a Christian leader who is conscious of God's strength. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul uh, speaks uh, at length about his thorn in the flesh, whatever that is. Uh, and uh, Paul says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Final implication, expect people to be saved. Don't move on from the message of the cross. Expect the world's disdain. Embrace your weakness and expect people to be saved. Expect people to be saved because the message of the cross is the power of God for salvation. Now, there's something that I wonder if, as Christians in Scotland, for example, that we've lost confidence in. The expectation that people will be saved. We've had too many years of a lack of response. There's too much apathy around us. Now, let me just flip your minds to East Asia when the disdain that we experience is multiplied a hundred times. There is never a day that goes by where these Christian people expect anything else other than people to be saved. And I want us as a church to pray not that we will simply be strong and firm and not move on from the cross, and like hold on and bunker down. But to pray that God will burden us with an expectation that as we speak the message of the cross, whether behind a lectern or at a funeral or at a wedding or on the bus or with our friends or whoever it is in our evangelism, personally, people will be saved. Now, let's turn to wisdom. Ideally, um, we would have finished power last week and done wisdom this week, but I got myself in a bit of a clutter, so that's why we're doing uh, two. And so I encourage you to listen to the sermon again uh, just to try and pick up the bits that um, you don't. So uh, 
True spiritual wisdom in the life of a church is the wisdom of God. Now, none of us would dispute that. The wisdom of God is in the Bible, yeah? The point that Paul is making here is not so much what the wisdom of God is, it's how you get it. How do you get this wisdom? Now, I look out at... uh, I mean, how many of you are doing PhDs? Don't put your hands up, because it'll just discourage everybody else. I mean, probably 20 people in this room are, 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 are experts in their chosen fields of study. And you get that wisdom by study and by reading and by searching and researching. But you do not get the wisdom of God like that. And that is such a wonderfully liberating thing. Let me show you. God's wisdom, verses 6 to 9, is hidden from humans. Among the mature, Paul writes, we do impart wisdom, and he's saying there that the Corinthian church thought they were mature, but they were too influenced by the wisdom of the world. True spiritual maturity is to know the wisdom of God. Verse 7, it is a secret and a hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age, none of the, the best minds of this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What Paul is saying is that God's wisdom is hidden from human beings in the sense that it is inaccessible to our investigation or our inquiry. The very best human minds, articulated in the very best of human wisdom, cannot know God, cannot know the mind of God, the wisdom of God. Now, let me illustrate that in a very simple way. If I were to ask you, what am I thinking now? What am I thinking? There's no way you can know. There's no one in the world, there's no form of analysis or psychology that will ever tell you what I am thinking unless I tell you. I know what I'm thinking. But you don't know. You wouldn't presume to know. So why is it as human beings that we presume to know what God is saying? The very best human minds marshalling the very best of human wisdom. Wonderful stuff that they can fathom and do for us, but they cannot know the mind of another human being and they cannot know the mind of Almighty God. It is arrogant and presumptuous for humanity to think it can know about God Our only hope is that God reveals himself to us. And that is why the beginning of verse 10 is such good news. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. In other words, the wisdom of God is revealed to us through his Spirit. And in verses 10b to 16, Paul sets out four logical steps 
to explain how the wisdom of God is revealed to us by the Spirit. And uh, I owe this uh, heading to somebody else. His name is Vaughan Roberts, in case any of you uh, tell me that. Number one, step one, the Spirit knows what we call internal revelation. Verse 10b, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. A moment ago I asked you to speculate on what I was thinking. You couldn't know, but I knew. How did I know? My spirit, my ego, my consciousness, whatever term you want to use, knew what I was thinking. Likewise, God's Spirit, that bit of Himself, His Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit, God Himself in His Spirit knows what God is thinking. The Spirit is part of God. The Spirit knows the mind of God. We've called that internal revelation. Step two, the Spirit who knows the mind of God reveals what we call apostolic revelation. Verse 12, now we, that's the key word, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The we here is Paul and his fellow apostles. That's clear from the context in the letter. Paul refers to the Christians in Corinth as you, and he refers to himself and his fellow apostles as I, we, or us. The wisdom of God was revealed first to the apostles of Jesus, then step three, the wisdom of God revealed to the apostles was never meant to be just for them. So step three, the Spirit inspires what we call scriptural revelation, verse 13. And we impart this wisdom, we, that is the apostles, impart this wisdom in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, the apostles were inspired by God to write down the wisdom of God that had been revealed to them. Like the prophets, inspired by God to write the Old Testament scriptures, the apostles inspired by God to write the New Testament scriptures. And what is it they have written down in the pages of our Bibles? They have written down the wisdom of God that has been revealed to them. So when you read the Bible, think of the New Testament. Think of the Gospels. You're not simply reading events described. You are reading of events and their interpretation. The Spirit inspired the apostles not simply to remind us that Christ died, but to teach us that Christ died for our sins. The events plus their explanation. Just a comment on what the Bible inspired by God means. The Bible wasn't dictated by God to the apostles and prophets. The Bible's authors are humans. That's what makes the Bible such a rich book with different styles and personalities, but inspired by God. Here's what Jesus said to the apostles, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring 
to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What are the implications of the divine inspiration of Scripture? The Scriptures say, the Bible says what God says, the apostles speak the words of God, and so if we reject the apostles' words, we reject God's words. The Spirit knows, the Spirit reveals, the Spirit inspires, but there's one more step. You can have in front of you, you can have on your laps, you can have on your phone what is factually, objectively, the inspired words of God given to his apostles by his Spirit, and it can mean absolutely nothing to you. It can be like double dutch. It can, mean abs- it can just be stories. It can just... It doesn't point you to Christ unless the same Spirit opens your eyes, opens your heart. The natural person, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And then look at verse uh, uh, 16. It's a quote from Isaiah. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? You know, when we read that, it's that great chapter that finishes with a bit about eagles and wings and all that and walking and not fainting. You know, you think, well, God holds the, the, the nations like a, 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 like a drop in a bucket. And who can discern the mind of God? Who, who can count the stars that he made? And the answer here in 1 Corinthians is, is who, who, who has understood the mind of Almighty God? The answer is you have the mind of Christ. It's that extraordinary, isn't it? It's extraordinary for me to remind you of that. I was on the phone this week to, as I often am, to Andy Robertson, who trained here and is the minister in Charleston in Dundee. Andy's congregation is not like you lot. I don't think I really have to persuade you nor me, that we are not altogether impressive and in worldly terms are not up to very much. But what a wonderful, wonderful thing it is when Andy reads these verses to people in Charleston who are addicted to this, that, and the other, whose lives are a mess, and he says to them, you have the mind of Christ. How extraordinary. And in the world's eyes, they can hardly string a sentence together. And he has to fill in form after form for them. But they have the mind of Christ. That's why I think Jesus perhaps spent so much time in his ministry with the poor and the uneducated. People who just could not stand up in any place as worldly wise. But they have the mind of Christ. Now, the most important thing to say today, that's a good way of making you wake up if you've fallen asleep, is why does it go from step one 
to step two, to step three, to step... Why doesn't it go just from step one to step four? Why not the, the Spirit, who knows the mind of God, why do we not go straight from there to the Spirit reveals that straight to me? Why do we not go from A to D? Why have you got this bit in the middle about first to the apostles, then in Scripture? Why not just go straight from God to us because there will be chaos? Especially in times like we're in in the Western world where things get tough. Why is it when churches or individuals say, God has revealed some truth to me that is different from what he revealed to the apostles, why does it always lead to an easier, more acceptable form of Christianity in the culture? It's illogical. You never ever find people saying, God has laid on my heart or my church's heart, a particular vision that actually makes it harder. It's always to resonate. And oftentimes it's done not intentionally to reject God just because it takes a huge amount of nerve or biblical commitment not to change. when what you are doing and holding to seems not to be working. And if God comes in his power and begins to, to turn things around in our islands, and people begin to respond to the gospel, we'll never think of changing the message then. But we do think of changing it now. A truly spiritual church, a mature church, is committed to teaching what the Bible says and doing what the Bible says. Why? Because that is how God has revealed his wisdom to us. And there's a great, great challenge to the church in, in the West. At this critical juncture in our history, we need to hold fast to the Word of God. To detract from it or add to it is to put our wisdom before God's wisdom, which is foolish, Now, three implications as we close. Number one, thank God for his wisdom. You have no more found out God's wisdom than somebody in Charleston who has never, ever read a book in their life. God has opened your eyes to understand. And so there is no room for pride. And I think for most of us here, though, it's not the humbling of pride that we need. It's the, it's the confidence that God has opened your eyes and given you the mind of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's profoundly reassuring when you realize that you have not found God, but that he has found you. It's not the parable of the lost shepherd. It's the lost sheep. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found. Not God was lost, but I found him. (laughs) Number two, seek God's wisdom. As you live your life as a Christian and as a church, you are faced with numerous decisions. Seek God's wisdom to make them. Seek God's wisdom. Live by the word of God. Make decisions according to the word of God. Don't look to the world for the answer when you are in a predicament. Look for the wisdom of God. And number three implication, stick with God's wisdom. You'll find it in the Bible. Never, ever move on from that. And remember, if you do move on from that, or we move on from that as a church, almost certainly people will start saying things like, that's impressive, or come and have a seat around this table, or actually what you're saying is quite persuasive. I'm happy to meet up with you. But it's not going to change their lives. Stick with God's wisdom. Stick with it in an accessible way, in a wise way, in a rhetoric way, in a gracious way. Quietly, don't shout, just be... Stick to it. And where do the power of God and the wisdom of God intersect? We talked about the wisdom of God, the power of God today. Where do they intersect? They intersect on the cross, of course. So let me finish with this quotation, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we can never... And I pray we will never. And I pray for the church, as you do, and for our brothers and sisters in East Asia today, that they will never, ever, ever, ever move from the message of the cross, which is the power and the wisdom of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to the end of our service here once again for our brothers and sisters in East Asia and what we know is surely being repeated across that part of the world. We pray, Lord, that they will never, ever, ever move on from the message of the cross, which is the power and wisdom of God. Bring to their minds, Lord, where true power is and to be on the side of the Lord even when the world's disdain and hostility is directed against you is to be on the safe side. And for us, Lord, here as local churches, we pray that we would stick to the message of the cross, stick to the wisdom of God revealed to us, and do so in wise and arenic and accessible and articulate ways, And grant to us, Lord, the expectation 
that people will be converted. They will become Christians. Because when we speak the message of the cross, that is the power of Almighty God. When we feel weak, as we often do, when our words feel stumbling, as they always are, we pray that we will remember these words in Corinthians, that that is the real deal and the real thing. And we ask that all for Jesus' sake and in his name.